Chapter 3, Part 1 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Court Lane. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long. 1867-1923 Chapter 3 The Significance of the Father in the Destiny of the Individual Ducunt volentum fata, nolentum traut Freud has pointed out in many places with unmistakable clearness that the psychosexual relationship of the child towards his parents, particularly towards the father, possesses an overwhelming importance in the content of any later neurosis. This relationship is in fact the infantile channel par excellence in which the libido flows back when it encounters any obstacles in later years, thus revivifying long-forgotten dreams of childhood. It is ever so in life when we draw back before too great an obstacle, the menace of some severe disappointment or the risk of some too far-reaching decision, the energy stored up for the solution of the task flows back impotent. The by-streams once relinquished as inadequate are again filled up. He who has missed the happiness of a woman's love falls back as a substitute upon some gushing friendship, upon masturbation, upon religiosity. Should he be an erotic, he plunges still further back into the conditions of childhood which have never been quite forsaken, to which even the normal is fettered by more than one link. He returns to the relationship to father and mother. Every psychoanalysis carried out at all thoroughly shows this regression more or less plainly. One peculiarity which stands out in the works and views of Freud is that the relationship to the father is seen to possess an overwhelming importance. This importance of the father in the moulding of the child's psychosexuality may also be discovered in a quite other and remote field, in the investigation of the family. The most recent thorough investigations demonstrate the predominating influence of the father often lasting for centuries. The mother seems of less importance in the family. If this is true for heredity on the physical side, how much more should we expect from the psychological influences emanating from the father? These experiences, and those gained more particularly in an analysis carried out conjointly with Dr. Otto Gross, have impressed upon me the soundness of this view. The problem has been considerably advanced and deepened by the investigations of my pupil, Dr. Emma First, into familial resemblances in the reaction type. First made association experiments on 100 persons belonging to 24 families. Of this extensive material, only the results in 9 families and 37 persons, all uneducated, have been worked out and published. But the painstaking calculations do already permit some valuable conclusions. The associations are classified on the Krapelin Aschaffenburg scheme, as simplified and modified by myself. The difference is then calculated between each group of qualities of the subjects experimented upon and the corresponding group of every other subject experimented upon. Thus, we finally get the differentiation of the mean and reaction type. The following is the result Non related men differ among themselves by 5.9, non related women differ among themselves by 6.0. Related men differ among themselves by 4.1, related women differ among themselves by 3.8. Relatives, and especially related women, have therefore, on the average, resemblance in reaction type. This fact means that the psychological adaptation of relatives differs but slightly. An investigation into the various relationships gave the following. The mean difference of the husband and wife amounts to 4.7. 
The mean deviation of this mean is, however, 3.7, a very high figure, which signifies that the mean figure, 4.7, is composed of very heterogeneous figures. There are married couples in whom the reaction type is very close and others in whom it is very slight. On the whole, however, father and son, mother and daughter, stand remarkably close. The difference between father and son amounts to 3.1. The difference between mother and daughter amounts to 3.0. With the exception of a few cases of married couples where the difference fell to 1.4, these are the lowest differences. In Frost's work, there was a case where the difference between the 45-year-old mother and her 16-year-old daughter was only 0.5. But it was just in this case that the mother and daughter differed from the father's type by 11.8. The father is a coarse, stupid man and alcoholic. The mother goes in for Christian science. This corresponds with the fact that the mother and daughter exhibit an extreme word predic type, which is, in my experience, important semiotically for the diagnosis of insufficiency in the sexual object. The word predicate type transparently applies an excessive amount of emotion externally and displays emotions with the unconscious, but nevertheless obvious endeavor to awaken echoing emotions in the experimenter. This view closely corresponds with the fact that in Fersk's material, the number of word predicates increases with the age of the subjects experimented upon. The fact of the extreme similarity between the reaction type of the offspring and the parents is a matter for thought. The association experiment is nothing but a small section from the psychological life of a man. At bottom, daily life is nothing but an extensive and many varied association experiment. In essence, we react in life just as we do in the experiments. Although this truth is evident, still it requires a certain consideration and limitation. Let us take as an instance the case of the unhappy mother of 45 years and her unmarried daughter of 16. The extreme word predicate type of the mother is, without doubt, the precipitate of a whole life of disappointed hopes and wishes. One is not in the least surprised at the word predicate type here, but the daughter of 16 has really not yet lived at all, her real sexual object has not yet been found, and yet she reacts as if she were her mother, with endless dissolutions behind her. She has the mother's adaptation, and insofar she is identified with the mother. There is ample evidence that the mother's adaptation must be attributed to her relationship to the father. But the daughter is not married to the father and therefore does not need this adaptation. She has taken it over from the influence of her milieu, and later on will try to adapt herself to the world with this familial disharmony. Insofar as an ill-assorted marriage is unsuitable, the adaptation resulting from it is unsuitable. Clearly, such a fate has many possibilities. To adapt herself to life, this girl either will have to surmount the obstacles of her familial milieu, or, unable to free herself from them, she will succumb to the fate to which such an adaptation predisposes her. Deep within, unnoticed by anyone, there may go on a glossing over of the infantile disharmony or a development of the negative of the parent's character, accompanied by hindrances and conflicts to which she herself has no clue. Or, growing up, she will come into painful conflict with that world of actualities to which she is so ill-adapted till one stroke of fate after another gradually opens her eyes to the fact that it is herself, infantile and maladjusted, that is amiss. The source of infantile adaptation to the parents is, naturally, the affective condition on both sides. The psychosexuality of the parents on one side and that of the child on the other. It is a kind of psychical infection. We know that it is not logical truth, 
but affects in their psychical expressions, which are here the effective forces. It is these that, with the power of the herd instinct, press into the mind of the child, there fashioning and moulding it. In the plastic years between one and five, there have to be worked out all the essential formative lines which fit exactly into the parental mould. Psychoanalytic experience teaches us that, as a rule, the first signs of the later conflict between the parental constellation and individual independence of the struggle between repression and libido, Freud, occur before the fifth year. The few following histories will show how this parental constellation obstructs the adaptation of the offspring. It must suffice to present only the chief events of these, that is, the events of sexuality. Case 1. A well-preserved woman of 55, dressed poorly but carefully in black, with a certain elegance, the hair carefully dressed, a polite, obviously affected manner, precise in speech, a devotee. The patient might be the wife of a minor official or shopkeeper. She informs me, blushing and dropping her eyes, that she is a divorced wife of a common peasant. She has come to the hospital on account of depression. Night terrors, palpitations, slight nervous twitchings in the arms, thus presenting the typical features of a slight climacteric neurosis. To complete the picture, she adds that she suffers from severe anxiety dreams. In her dreams, some man seems to be pursuing her, wild animals attack her, and so on. Her anamnesis begins with a family history. So far as possible, I give her own words. Her father was a fine, stately, rather corpulent man, of imposing appearance. He was very happy in his marriage for her mother worshipped him. He was a clever man, a master mechanic, and held a dignified and honourable position. There were only two children, the patient and an elder sister. The sister was the mother's, and the patient her father's favourite. When the patient was five years old, the father died suddenly from a stroke. At the age of forty-two, the patient felt herself very isolated, and was, from that time, treated by the mother and the elder sister as the Cinderella. She noticed clearly enough that her mother preferred his sister to herself. Her mother remained a widow, her respect for her husband being too great to allow her to marry a second time. She preserved his memory like a religious cult, and brought up her children in this way. Later on, the sister married, relatively young. The patient did not marry till twenty-four. She never cared for young men. They all seemed insipid. Her mind turned always to more mature men. When about twenty, she became acquainted with a stately gentleman, rather over forty, to whom she was much drawn. For various reasons, the friendship was broken off. At twenty-four, she became acquainted with a widower who had two children. He was a fine, stately, somewhat corpulent man, and had an imposing presence, like her father. He was forty-four. She married him and respected him enormously. The marriage was childless. The children, by the first marriage, died from an infectious disease. After four years of married life, her husband also died. For eighteen years, she remained his faithful widow. But at forty-six, just before the menopause, she experienced a great need of love. As she had no acquaintances, she went to a matrimonial agency and married the first comer, a peasant of some sixty years who had been already twice divorced on account of brutality and perverseness. The patient knew this before marriage. She remained five unbearable years with him when she also obtained a divorce. The neurosis set in a little later. No further discussion will be required for those with psychoanalytic experience. The case is too obvious. For those unversed in psychoanalysis, let me point out that up to her forty-sixth year, the patient did but reproduce most faithfully the milieu of her earliest youth. The sexuality which announced itself so late and so drastically, even here only led to a deteriorated edition of the father's surrogate. To this she is brought by this late-blossoming sexuality. 
Despite repression, the neurosis betrays the ever-fluctuating eroticism of the aging woman who still wants to please affectation, but dares not acknowledge her sexuality. Case 2. A man of 34, of small build, and with a sensible, kindly expression. He is easily embarrassed, blushes often. He came for treatment on account of his nervousness. He says he is very irritable, readily fatigued, has nervous indigestion, is often deeply depressed so that he has thoughts of suicide. Before coming to me for treatment, he had sent me a circumstantial autobiography, or rather a history of his illness, in order to prepare me for his visit. His story began, quote, My father was a very big and strong man, end quote. This sentence awakened my curiosity. I turned over a page and there read, quote, When I was fifteen, a big lad of nineteen took me into the wood and indecently assaulted me, end quote. The numerous gaps in the patient's story induced me to obtain a more exact anamnesis from him, which produced the following remarkable facts. The patient is the youngest of three brothers. His father, a big, red-haired man, was formerly a soldier in the Papal Swiss Guard, and then became a policeman. He was a strict, gruff old soldier who brought up his sons with military precision. He commanded them, did not call them by name, but whistled to them. He had spent his youth in Rome, where he acquired syphilis from the consequences of which he still suffered in old age. He was fond of talking about his adventures in early life. His eldest son, considerably older than the patient, was exactly like him. He was big, strong, and had reddish hair. The mother was a feeble woman, prematurely aged, exhausted, and tired of life. She died at forty when the patient was eight years old. He preserved a tender and beautiful memory of his mother. When he went to school, he was always the whipping boy and always the object of his schoolfellow's mockery. The patient considers that his peculiar dialect was to blame for this. Later, he was apprenticed to a severe and unkind master, under most trying conditions from which all the other apprentices had run away, finding them intolerable. Here, he held out for over two years. At fifteen, the assault already mentioned took place, in addition to some other slighter homosexual experiences. Then, fate sent him to France. There, he made the acquaintance of a man from the south of France, a great boaster and a Don Juan. He dragged the patient into a brothel. He went unwilling and out of fear. He was impotent there. Later, he went to Paris, where his brother, a master mason, the replica of his father, was leading a dissolute life. There, the patient remained a long time, badly paid and helping his sister-in-law out of pity. The brother often took him along to a brothel, where the patient was always impotent. Here, the brother asked him to make over to him his inheritance, 6,000 francs. He first consulted his second brother, who was also in Paris, who urgently tried to dissuade him from giving the money to his brother, because it would only be squandered. Nevertheless, the patient gave his all to his brother, who indeed soon squandered it. And the second brother, who would have dissuaded him, was also let in for five hundred francs. To my astonished question, why he had so light-heartedly given the money to his brother without any guarantee, he replied, he had asked for it, he was not a bit sorry about the money. He would give him another six thousand francs if he had it. The eldest brother came to grief altogether and his wife divorced him. The patient returned to Switzerland and remained for a year without regular employment, often suffering from hunger. During this time he made the acquaintance of a family where he became a frequent visitor. The husband belonged to some peculiar sect. He was a hypocrite and neglected his family. The wife was elderly, ill and weak, and moreover pregnant. There were six children in great poverty. The patient developed warm affection for this woman and divided with her the little he possessed. She brought him her troubles, and said she felt sure she would die in childbed. Then he promised her, he who possessed nothing, to take charge of the children himself and bring them up. The wife did die in childbed. The orphanage board interfered, however, and allowed him only one child. 
So he had a child, but no family, and naturally could not bring it up by himself. He thus came to think of marrying. But as he had never been in love with any woman, he was in great perplexity. It then occurred to him that his elder brother was divorced from his wife, and he resolved to marry her. He wrote his intention to her in Paris. She was seventeen years older than he, but not disinclined to the plan. She invited him to come to Paris to talk matters over. On the eve of this journey, fate, however, willed that he should run a big iron nail into his foot so that he could not travel. After a little while, when the wound was healed, he went to Paris and found that he had imagined his sister-in-law, and now his fiancée, to be younger and prettier than she really was. The wedding took place, and three months later, the first coitus, at the wife's initiative. He himself had no desire for it. They brought up the child together, he in the Swiss and she in the French way for she was a French woman. At the age of nine, the child was run over and killed by a cyclist. The patient then felt very lonely and dismal at home. He proposed to his wife that she should adopt a young girl, whereupon she broke out in a fury of jealousy. Then, for the first time, he fell in love with a young girl, whilst at the same time the neurosis started, with deep depression and nervous exhaustion, for meanwhile his life at home had become a hell. My proposition to separate from his wife was refused out of hand, because he could not take upon himself to make the old woman unhappy on his account. He clearly prefers to be tormented still further, for it would seem that the recollection of his youth is more precious to him than any present joys. In this case also, the whole movement of a life takes place in the magic circle of the familial constellation. The relation to the father is the strongest and most momentous issue its masochistic homosexual, its masochistic homosexual colouring stands out clearly everywhere. Even the unhappy marriage is determined in every way through the father. For the patient marries the divorced wife of his eldest brother, which is as if he married his mother. His wife is also the representative of the mother surrogate, of the friend who died in childbed. The neurosis started at the moment when the libido had obviously withdrawn from this relationship of infantile constellation and approached, for the first time, the sexual end determined by the individual. In this, as in the previous case, the familial constellation proves to be by far the stronger. The narrow field vouchsafed by a neurosis is all that remains for the display of individuality. End of part one.